John Bolton has had quite a few challenging jobs, among them presidential national security advisor, ambassador to the United Nations, as well as several senior positions in the State Department. He's here today to chat with us about many issues, but particularly about his original and provocative new essay in National Review on the so-called rules-based international order. Who is we? Ruel Marcorect, a senior fellow at FDD, formerly a case officer at the CIA, and yours truly, Cliff May, FDD founder and president. And of course, it's nice that you're with us too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Okay, so John, as I mentioned, you have a new piece in National Review and asks the question, is there a rules-based international order? And and let me add, it's it's often called the American-led liberal rules-based international order. And I guess your basic thesis is that it's uh, it's a paper moon sailing over a cardboard sky. It's make-believe. Well, I didn't have that metaphor, but I wish I, I, wish <laughs> I had time. brought it up. Uh, you know, it's uh, part of the problem is, is it a rules-based international order? Is it a liberal rules-based international order? Is it a U.S.? No, nobody really knows. And in fact, uh, the candid uh, observation is people are willing to concede. They don't know what the content is, but it sounds good. Uh, and and therefore, among the high-minded of the world, in the U.S. and Europe in particular, they like to talk about it all the time. Superficially, of course, it sounds good. Who doesn't want rules-based international order? Uh, the trouble is it just doesn't conform to reality. It's part of a long series of uh, idealistic views of how to basically end war uh, in the contemporary world. Uh, world federalism was a big thing after World War II. Uh, John F. Kennedy, Richard Nixon, Jerry Ford in their early days as members of the House of Representatives all supported resolutions in in, uh, favor of it. Uh, But one uh, decade after another has brought failure to each successive iteration. The rules-based international order is the most recent, and it ignores the, the most fundamental rule of international politics is that it's based on power. The international order is not the same as the domestic order in the United States or any other country. And when you make analogies between the two, you're making a fatal mistake. Let me, let me try this way of looking at it, which is not in contradiction, but it's slightly different. Tell me where, if, it's, if it's wrong, particularly after World War II. But as you say, the League of Nations, Kellogg-Briand, Pact, there have been efforts. But after World War II, the, the, the great minds said, look, we, we – we, we, we don't want to be uh, – America doesn't want to run everything. We want to set up something that everybody will see as fair. And so you have the UN Human Rights Declaration and the Soviets were brought in on that. You, you guys can accept this too, right? Because it's not just the right to free speech, which you may not really believe in. It's the right to work and the right to leisure and all kinds of socialist made-up rights and things like that. So we'll have this basic idea that we can all buy into and won't that be better? Now, I would argue that when the U.S. is – really strong, like after the collapse of the Soviet Union, perhaps. Um, and, and we got the unilateral moment, as Charles Cranhammer called it. You could say maybe that's working. But at a certain point, others, particularly the Chinese, but not just the Chinese in Beijing, said, okay, there is this architecture of an international order. It's rules-based. Why don't we just hijack it? Then we have the UN. Then we have the UN Human Rights Council. Then we have the WHO, the World Health Organization. Then we have the International Criminal. They'll, we can make them dance to our tune instead of America's tune. And I would go further and say, they're they're more than halfway there at this point. Let me Well, this is what happens, I think, when you try to over-conceptualize the real world and believe in the picture that you've painted uh, as opposed to what's actually going on. There there is a kind of order in the world today. It's a a jerry-rigged uh, 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 Rube Goldberg kind of device, 
nobody would plan it in advance. But it's it's basically the system of American alliances and power around the world. It's it is our order, but it's not rules based, other than in the sense of uh, the golden rule. That is, you know, who has the gold makes the rules. Uh, it's an American order, and a lot of people don't like it, and there's no doubt about it. But it's not based on law. Uh, it's based on power. If we had started out with this proposal having the power of Lithuania, we wouldn't have a lot of adherence to it. Now, uh, everything you've said about our view of the world, the fact that as an imperial power, we are the least imperial power in human history, and all that sort of thing, uh, I believe in, and I do believe in the, in the morality of America's uh, conduct in the world. But without the power, it would be a pretty pale, a pretty pale picture. Everything depend it just depended upon American hegemony, uh, and unfortunately, on neither the left or the right. I think do you find many enthusiasts in favor of that concept anymore? And I have to say, I don't think the American political elite uh, on the left or the right has done a particularly brilliant job of articulating why American hegemony is a really, really good idea and why it's worth the money that you spend on it. Well, I think the left in particular in this country, and probably you know, they're not supporters of the idea of American hegemony. I might go further and say that Americans in general, if they could give up primacy in the world, there's certainly, there's certainly an isolationist impulse on the left and the right to say, you know what, it's not worth the trouble. It's not. Why can't we not do this? Why can't we be more like Denmark? Wouldn't that be much nicer? And okay, as you all know, but let's re remember after World War II, the British that had been the preeminent power for a fairly long time, historically, not like the Roman Empire, but fairly long time, they were exhausted. So they said, okay, we can't carry this load anymore. We'll give it to the Americans. But if the Americans don't want to carry the load and they don't appear to, a lot of them, not, not me, not you, not, uh, not uh, none of us, then there's no good nation that is strong enough and no strong nation that is good enough. Now, then a lot of people say, that's why we need an international order. That's why we need, and we're going to get to this because you talk about this, either a global government or you more, more euphemistically global governance um, because then then nobody's really in charge. We we all, uh, of course, the, the, the Chinese, the, the Iranian regime, the Russians, they say, yeah, that's a lot of fun, but we do not obey anybody else's rules. We do it our way. So that, in other words, if America is giving up the the any ambition or even the the or the res, or the responsibilities of being the world the leading world power uh, then there's no good substitute there's just bad substitutes yeah well i think uh i think this isolationism in the united states on both the left and the right is real i don't think there's any doubt about that i think the isolationism on the left uh, is different from that on the right in that the left really does yearn for global government. I mean, they, 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 they yearn for bigger government. They don't like counties. Yeah. They like state governments. They don't like states. They like the federal government right. and a world government. Oh, make, 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 make my day. <laughs> uh, so in that's, and, but I also think there is a deep strain of feeling that American power is illegitimate, that we're no different from any of the rest of them and that you can't trust us. So for many of these people in international law circles, constraining the United States, which is viewed as just as much of a problem as a China or a Russia, uh, after all, it was not uh, one of those two countries that uh, French Foreign Minister Vadrine called a hyperpuissance. We, we are the only one he uh, he uh, deigned to give that title to because that's the one they were most worried about. I think on the right, the isolationism has a long history to it, um, going back to pre-World War II. Uh, I think, though, today, the reason that it's more widespread uh, is because political leaders have taken the cheap way out and have not explained, we're not engaged in the world out of altruistic motivations. We're doing this for ourselves. And uh, we help a lot of other people, and a lot of times those people don't pay their fair share, which we should press them on. But we're not doing it to make their lives more comfortable. We're doing it to enhance our own. And if we give it up, there's nobody else that's going to do it for us. I and I, I would add just quickly on that. I mean, I do think that President Trump, and this is something different about him, did introduce the idea of moral equivalence on the right. That he uh, said the United States, too, was a predacious power. The United States, too, did dark things uh, in that, there, that we were not, you know, special, uh, which actually isn't that different from what Barack Obama said. 
I think that's right. Uh, you know, there is there is this well kept secret about the United States, which is it's filled with human beings who <laughs> who, who make mortal mistakes, and 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 we'd be we'd be foolish not to acknowledge that. But I do think this was a problem of Trump's approach to the world, as he once said to the Russians, "Well, what's so good about us?" I think uh, with regard to Putin's conduct. Uh, and and that that is the kind of thing that's that really characterizes the left in American politics that uh, that we're no different from these other totalitarian states in effect. I, I'm reminded of John Kerry when he was Secretary of State, uh, announcing uh, the Monroe Doctrine is over, and I think he, what he meant by that was we don't want to interfere in the affairs of of Latin America. That was a wrong thing for Monroe and many of the presidents to do. But this administration is much more enlightened, so we won't. And that was, of course, a green light that since then what we've seen, and I, I wrote a piece about this recently, but and there's a few others have as well, Latin America is being overrun with Chinese, Iranian, and Russian influence right now and has been for the past few years. But he kind of gave a green light to it. Says it's not our problem. Now, he probably thought you guys can take care of yourselves. The problem is they guys can't take care of themselves without any help from a superpower if the predacious powers of the world, like China, like Iran, uh, are, are, are going to put their foot in there. Right. They're well, going to do I it. I mean, that brings up a question. I mean, can, John, can you imagine, for example, a scenario and take the, take those three revisionist powers, take Iran, take China, and Russia. Can you imagine a scenario where the United States would be prepared to go to war, where it would actually draw a red line and mean it to stop them? Well, I think our objective, uh, as as really it has been uh, since 1945, is, is to avoid war but preserve our interest and and therefore to constrain uh, adversaries uh, uh, who, are, who are who don't wish us well. You want structures of deterrence in place that convince them that the cost to them of taking any kind of belligerent action would be far the, they, greater. You do have they. It has to be credible. I mean, they have to believe that, that you're willing to kill and bleed. For for a red line, yeah, some principle. But I think I think so many steps over the past, I'll, I'll just say, fifteen years to maybe sixteen to give the the last two administrations, not counting Biden, the full scope of it. We've done one thing after another that has significantly undercut the feelings of deterrence that we've built up over a long time. I think the withdrawal from Afghanistan probably ranks right at the top of that. I think we see the consequences of it now, and that goes to the issue of America's order at all, because when we withdraw from Afghanistan, no better order replaces it. It only gets worse. I want to go back. I want to get, I want to talk more about Afghanistan, but one quick digression that's relevant would be Venezuela, because this is, I mean, this is a country where millions of people have fled from poverty. It's a dreadful, uh, dreadful situation. We had in the last administration, Elliot Abrams, very smart, experienced guy as a special envoy there. We were going to do something about this terrible humanitarian and political situation really in our backyard. One of the, if not the largest oil producer. And, and of course, I, for, as far as I can see, we've made no progress whatsoever. No, look, I, I uh, was very much involved in uh, in supporting uh, Juan Guaido and the opposition. I think uh, we we did the right thing. Our problem was we didn't do enough. Uh, we didn't we didn't follow through on some of the things that might have made a difference in uh, Venezuela. And speaking of a moral case for the assertion of American power, uh, you know, you've got a uh, 20 plus year dictatorship in Venezuela that has driven oil production in this potentially very rich country down to one third of the level it was in the late 1940s. So no surprise, the country is a lot poorer in part because the leadership is stealing the money that does come in, profiting from drug trafficking. And yet, uh, I think because of the legacy of the Obama administration, we couldn't summon up the strength uh, to to follow it through consistently, and it's just getting worse in Venezuela. Could I ask you, John? I mean, if you could, I mean, it's always fun to you know historical hindsight, but I mean, if you could rewind the tape on Venezuela, what would you have done differently? Well, I think if you go back to the George W. Bush administration, there was a moment when uh, Hugo Chavez was in custody uh, in Venezuela from from from. Uh, uh, a coup d'etat or maybe kind of accidental thing. And we stepped back and said, we're not going to interfere. That was the moment, I think, where it might have made a difference. In terms of what happened in early 2019, uh, honestly, uh, we followed the the views of the people, uh, the opposition in Venezuela. They thought the moment had come uh, and we were wrong on that. So that was uh, there was probably more we could have done to assist them that we didn't do. 
uh, I think it's something we'll review for a long time. But but the point is, one of the reasons we focused on it w- was not altruism because we wanted a democratic government for the Venezuelans, but precisely the point that uh, that you both have been making, that in Venezuela, we saw a heavy Russian presence, a heavy Chinese presence, a heavy Iranian presence, supporting a heavy Cuban presence. The Venezuelans were not being governed by a Venezuelan government. They were being governed by a surrogate of outside powers. And that remains today, and it's even more entrenched. And by the way, am I I overstating the case to say that right now, Cuba, terrible little dictatorship, poor under sanctions, is more influential in Latin America than the United States is? Yeah, look, every every new president comes into office saying, I'm going to pay more attention to Latin America. I'm going to make it a higher priority. Nobody ever does. And, and as a consequence, we are where we are. It's very interesting the Biden administration has not, in Cuba at least, tried to roll all the way back uh, to the Obama policy. Uh, Cuba is another case where during the Trump administration, we didn't go far enough. We should have derecognized the government. Uh, I think if you look at the demonstrations on the island today, Cuban uh, uh, exiles or descendants of exiles in America today say they've never seen anything like it on the island. The extent of the demonstrations among the young people, people who have never known anything other than the dictatorship are saying we've had enough of it. So uh, there are so many cases like this around the world where some small amount of assistance to people who you know want to be free, that kind of thing, uh, could produce enormous benefits for them and for us, uh, and yet we're unwilling to do it. One more quick thing before we go to Afghanistan. Well, uh, probably Robert Kagan is the guy who is the biggest champion of the American-led international rules-based order. He's written books on it, and if we don't have that, the jungle grows back. and and, And you are probably better than anybody other than Robert Kagan to explain his his view and what's right and wrong. So just channel Rob, Bob Kagan for a second. Well, that's challenging. Uh, <laughs> you can do it. Yeah. You're up to the challenge. I mean, I think, I think Bob would start first with the notion of American hegemony. I mean, uh, you have to have, everything has to come under that umbrella. So uh, he- But does a, can an American president, I don't think he would, if he said this, I haven't seen it, say, America is going to be the global hegemon. Get used to it, everybody. We're the best, and it, everybody else is worse well, no, than us. I, so I let's think, do it. I think Bob would would suggest that you don't dictate it quite in such a tone, uh, and that uh, I mean, one reason again to restate what I said earlier that the Europeans have more or less been satisfied with American leadership is that it's not very heavy handed. If you go to NATO, you will discover that the Americans usually, you know, hold back. They're, they try to get the other the Europeans to, you know, come forward and do things. And it's usually when they, you know, don't do things or they get stymied, do the Americans intercede and, and you know, exercise leadership. But the idea is to be fairly uh, light uh, in, in your approach. Now, I think he would also say that in alliances by definition, you do have to tie yourself down a bit. You can't exercise unilateral authority all the time. So you have to be careful the way you treat others. Uh, you have to share your toys. So, uh, but the basic idea, I think, behind Bob would be that he certainly believes that America needs to be a global cop. Uh, now you get to choose where you're going to exercise that authority. And you exercising that authority is always going to be messy. Uh, and that there isn't a clean approach to this and you can't escape uh, wars. Wars are a defining part of history and no matter how you try, you have to be prepared to fight them. And sometimes when you fight them, they're going to be messy. And the leadership needs to explain that. That in fact, it's you're going to have to uh, prepare people for the long haul, not the short haul. You're going to have to suggest to them that it's not going to be in quick, that uh, if this is a, a long-term affair and we have to be prepared to spend the money uh, and bleed for it. I, I would say that – I want to hear what you have to say about this, John, but that sounds more like the world according to Rob Mark Correct than the world according to Robert Kagan no. and certainly not what his wife, a high official in the State Department, is – He, she's not taking his advice in this administration. Well, one, I mean I think if you're a high official in the State Department, you follow the president's directive. I think John could speak to that issue of <laughs> of, of 
how you get to exercise your independence. Uh, but well, just influence, uh, I would be but, satisfied. Uh, I, I, I think it's, uh, and I, I'm sure that uh, Toria is, is Tor is doing her best. But uh, the, I, I, I think if you were to have uh, uh, Bob in this room, he, he would emphasize uh, the preeminent importance of the United States engaging. And part of engagement is uh, ineluctably tied uh, to American power. And that the most important thing you can do is uh, certainly to keep American defense spending up. Because if you collapse defense spending, if it contracts, American willpower will go with it. The two are tied. So I want to hear anything you have to say about this, but I'll, let me throw out another question too that you can bridge to, which is if you're talking about doing that, the last thing you want to do is abandon your allies in Afghanistan in the midst of a war and say, we're pulling out by about high noon. And I don't know what you guys are going to do, but good luck, because that's what we did to the, our allies in uniform in Afghanistan with a withdrawal, that w with a surrender to the Taliban 20 years after they after their allies, Al-Qaeda, attacked us. And they're doing it in a way that leaves billions of dollars more military aid to be given to the Taliban than probably any other nation on earth right now. That's what the Biden administration did. And, 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 and yes, I agree. This is probably what Biden wanted to do, but my God, some deputy should have said, this is a bad idea. And some deputy, maybe general Milley, who was responsible should have said, sir, I can't do this. I have to resign and let somebody else do this because I can see what's going to happen. And it's going to be catastrophic. If you understand, if you have any faith in me, you'll take my advice. If you don't, uh, it was a pleasure. Yeah. Well, well, well said on Afghanistan. I, I think the question I would ask Bob Kagan is how does it feel after 40 years of worrying about the Sandinista regime in Nicaragua to know that they're still in power? <laughs> and that that, for, those, for those who say America has a heavy hand anywhere in the world and particularly in the Western Hemisphere, there's the disproof of that right there. And making, I, and making common cause with Beijing right now. Right. Look, I, I don't I don't like the hegemony idea because I think it's too much work. What I want is just uh, just to be have things kind of uh, bubble along on their own. Uh, there are some circumstances where you have to take a more uh, substantial position. That's what NATO was all about during the Cold War. And that's why the American order in the world is so jerry-rigged. It's not by design. It's almost like they say about the British Empire, we put it together in a fit of absence of mind. There's, <laughs> there's nobody who would ever start from scratch. And it's better designed than the British well, let's see how long it lasts. <laughs> I know. Right, uh, that's right. the test. Uh, but I think the, uh, the, the, the proof of the pudding really of a lot of this is in Afghanistan. And uh, as I've said and others have as well, the Biden withdrawal and it was botched uh, almost beyond belief. But the Biden withdrawal, I think, would not have looked too different from a Trump withdrawal had he won a second term. He wanted out. He wouldn't have listened to his generals if they said, "Hey, this is we can't do this in this time frame." Okay, we can do it, but not in this time frame. I mean, you know, you because you talked him out of some other withdrawals. Well, I was going to say there have been there have been occasions where the pace has been pushed back, but in his mind, uh, uh, because of Rand Paul and others who yeah, kept saying, "You've yeah. got to end these endless wars," yeah. he wanted to be able to say zero troops in Afghanistan. There were points he wanted to say zero in. Uh, Syria, he he never got to that point, thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, but I think on Afghanistan, uh, days before I resigned, he was about to invite the Taliban to Camp David yeah. to seal the deal. He was he what he didn't want to do was look foolish politically in the United States. But I think he would have gotten out. And what does that represent? All the things you said, plus. Uh, creating a strategic hole, a vacuum right mm -hmm. in the middle of Central Asia. Mm -hmm. and uh, Also, it's, I think it's important to note that the American presence in Afghanistan by the time uh, Biden uh, withdrew, it really wasn't terribly costly. Oh, I mean, I mean, when you add was, up the absolutely. dollars and you and you uh, if and you either look at uh, our GNP or our deficits, either. Uh, it's not a big percentage of what we spend. No, and the situation, while far from perfect, was stable before Trump started talking to Taliban. Once that got out and people knew that we mm. were headed for the exit, I think that destabilized the situation in and of itself. And that led to the rapid And collapse. encourages corruption, by the way. Uh, and and everybody head, heading for the, for the exit. Well, so if you're heading for the exit, you better make sure you, you, you got a, a thick wallet in your pocket or, or uh, before you get to Tajikistan or someplace like that. And those who didn't 
are now literally impoverished and begging on the streets. I mean, corruption probably. wasn't a problem in Afghanistan. I mean, let's it just say. It wasn't, but it, <laughs> it gave justification for it, let us say. But, but you know, it was ra- more rational than ever to be a corrupt. In Afghanistan, our having been there for 20 years means there's nobody, let's say, under 25 or 30 who remembers Afghanistan without the United States. Well, right. they, they remember it now yeah. and, and they will pay a price for it. And I think that's when other allies treaty allies, Japan, NATO members, South Korea, look at that and say, my God, they did that in Afghanistan. What will they do in our time of troubles? And I believe if you look at the circumstances in uh, Eastern Europe today uh, with Ukraine, if you look at the danger in the South China Sea or Taiwan or a host of other things around the world, the specter of what went wrong in Afghanistan uh, is is causing us to pay a very high price. Hey, John, John, if I can ask you, I mean, to take U- Ukraine, uh, what would you do now uh, to ensure that Putin doesn't eat it? Yeah. Well, I think uh, at some point there there needed to be a broad conversation about the countries in what I call the gray zone, Belarus, Moldova, Ukraine, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, left between NATO's eastern border, in effect, and Russia's western border. Uh, we, we should do mm-hmm. that right now because all the rest of that is at risk. But, but it's not time for an academic exercise. We're, we're in trouble in Ukraine right now. What would I do? I would change the nature of the deterrence that we're trying to create. All that Biden has done is threaten economic actions after Russian troops cross the border. I don't think Putin believes those threats for a whole variety of reasons, not including the Taking Crimea, not not uh, bearing any particular cost, but even if Biden is serious and it's not clear that he can deliver the Europeans on a lot of these things, Putin may not believe him anyway because of that lack of credibility. So I think rather than rely on deterrence based on the threat of something happening after the troops cross the border, you've got to do things right now before that happens. First of which would be to say no natural gas is going to flow through the Nord Stream to pipeline unless and until all Russian forces outside their border in countries that don't want them return to bases. Uh, That's to start with. I would, as the White House has now announced, I I feel like they've been listening to what I've been saying. They're apparently going to push more lethal weapon assistance into Ukraine right now. Well, that was done under Trump. At least they were. Trump was at least even pushing lethal weapons into Ukraine to help them defend themselves, right? Well, Congress pushed that. He accepted it. And and as I was leaving, he was was accepting the latest shipment of them. But but a lot more can be done right now. And I would, if if they don't have COVID, I would send Secretary of Defense Austin and Chief of Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Milley to Kiev. I would put mm. more American mm. forces and more NATO forces in right now, working with the Ukrainian army, not to fight necessarily, Train, but to show. And the way I uh, the image I would leave is the idea of Russian generals looking across the border through their field glasses, seeing American flags the other side and said, good God, I wonder what that means. Uh, if you don't change the cost-benefit analysis to Putin right now, then I think the risk of, uh, of some kind of military incursion is very high. The other risk is he's playing a shell game. And while we focus on Ukraine, he's looking at something else, or he's looking at less than all of Ukraine. And what I worry about is, let's say he takes more in eastern or southern Ukraine, Europeans, the Biden White House say, oh, well, thank God, it could have been so much worse. Absolutely. No need to do anything. He didn't take Kiev. He just took yeah. Odessa. Incremental right? collapse. That's, that's exactly. Yeah. And that's a terrible lesson for Putin to get. And quickly, people not focused on Kazakhstan, but he Putin did send troops into Kazakhstan. And by the way, I saw a lot of, uh, you know, smart, normally smart people saying, oh, my God, if he's involved in Kazakhstan, he can't get involved. And I would, and I thought, no, this is a guy who knows how to juggle multiple balls. You're, you're kidding yourself if you think he can't do both. Has he has he succeeded? Or uh, absolutely. Kazakhstan? This, was, this was a zero cost demonstration to the five Central Asian republics, former republics of the Soviet Union. We can do this to you in a heartbeat. Yeah. Putin had 2,500 people from Moscow uh, to uh, to Kazakhstan in Troops, a matter of hours. Yeah, yeah I think 3,500 in the end, which is about what we had in Afghanistan. Right. By the way, and he's gotten them out, and he's. Yeah. Uh, uh, his yeah. this strange little alliance he put together has worked. He's strengthened a pro-Russian government in Kazakhstan. Uh, and it all shows to everybody that he's on the move in the space of the former Soviet Union. Well, re- rewind the, the tape to Syria and when uh, Putin uh, committed uh, to Syria. 
it was quite common to hear Obama officials say that, oh, that's a serious strategic mistake. Obama himself said that, it. He said that you are, he said, Mr. Putin, and because he knows, I mean, he's Obama and this is just Putin. Mr. Putin, eventually, you're getting yourself into a quagmire, trust me. And I think Putin said, you know what? I have Wellington boots and you're bare, barefoot. So yeah, I mean, everybody, everybody mirror images, but I think the Americans uh, do it with perhaps more gusto than others. Well, John Kerry said at that point, you know, the Russians have had oh. a naval installation at TARDIS yeah. for a long, long time, and they but they began building an air base at Latakia. And a reporter asked John Kerry, well, what, what, what do you make of this air base? And Kerry said, I, I think it's just for force protection purposes. Well, what forces <laughs> were they for protecting? Why, did, why didn't they stay in Russia? They're pretty safe there too. I mean, that's the kind of mindset that says to Putin, I, I have a free hand here. You mentioned uh, Nord Stream 2, that's meant to bring fossil fuels, because we all know how important fossil fuels are, right, in, <laughs> into Germany. Um, if, the, if the U.S. said, okay, it, it, the, the oil and gas is not going to be flowing, uh, if Putin, are the Germans going along, which raises the larger question of the Europeans for two points of view. One is you say, you know, when, when, when there are times when the, the Europeans accept American hegemony as such, and there are times when they rebel, the French call it, what, puissance, which is kind of pejorative, right? Um, but two things. One is the Europeans don't have much military capability, and this gets into another subject we're going to talk about. They believe in diplomacy, diplomacy, whatever that means, which we should discuss. Uh, and they believe in surrendering sovereignty and global governance, both in terms of the EU, but also in terms of the UN. You see them constantly yeah, uh, trying I, to push I, the US you, to you do You have that. to be careful there. I, I, you don't want to overdo it. I mean- uh, Overdo the, what? Well, I mean, the French aren't known for surrendering sovereignty. So, uh, you know, the, that, that concept uh, appeals in certain circumstances, particularly if it has to do with sort of tying down the United States and allowing the Europeans to have more input. But uh, when it comes to their own actions, I don't really see, say, the French uh, uh, really surrendering much of their sovereignty, some of their economic sovereignty, because I think they realize the Germans do a better game than they do. Uh, I mean, the Germans have a harder time because they have so little military power. I mean, essentially, the German military forces uh, are, in any effective sense, they're non-existent. So the Germans are in a, a somewhat different situation. So I think it's you have to be careful lumping all the Europeans well, in together. I think there. I think the Europeans are separate in a sense. I think the Eastern and Central uh, yeah. Europeans are scared Absolutely. to death of what's going on and, and very much on our side. Uh, I think Western Europe is in a real state of crisis at this point. The new German government, after 16 years of Angela Merkel, we don't know what they're going to do. It doesn't look very promising, I have to say. They are not willing to live up to the pledge they voluntarily agreed to uh, about the two, spending the, the on 2 defense, 2% two of GDP yeah. pledge. This new government in their coalition agreement doesn't even include that. Uh, France is about to go into a presidential election. Very hard to see what the outcome of that is. Boris Johnson's government in the United Kingdom is hanging, I think, nearly by a thread as we speak. Uh, and the Biden administration is is not exactly providing leadership. So this is this is a real problem, and uh, uh, and I think the Russians see that, and I think that's one reason uh, Putin is pushing ahead now because he sees weakness, uncertainty, and division in the U.S. and in Europe. Yeah, I mean, the French have some military capabilities, the British some, not not huge, the Germans, as you say, almost nothing, and many of the others in NATO don't. And there's this, and you, you, you see this reflected in, well, NATO guarantees our security, which means the Americans guarantee our security, which is not a good thing if you're talking about collective security. Well, no, that was part of the World War II deal. I mean, uh, so there was an understanding, and I think it was a fine understanding, that the United States carries the heavy load here. Uh, now, it's become increasingly difficult after the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, for the United States to carry that load, not because we don't have the capacity, but I think we lack the argument. We made the wrong arguments in many ways during the entire Cold War. So, uh, right, but, okay, but but there's a there's a corollary here, which is if you if you don't have a hammer, no problem looks like a nail. So, in other words, you have the Europeans not having military power and deciding, and you hear this all the time, that the answer to everything is diplomacy. 
Yeah, there must is, be a diplomatic solution. This is, this is the rules-based international order because exactly, you agree exactly. on something and everybody lives happily ever after. If you try that in Warsaw today, they would throw you out of the room because, because they can hear the rumble of the tanks, yeah. uh, literally probably. So this is, this is a, I think, a crisis for NATO. And I don't, uh, I don't see any indication the Biden administration has thought this through. But I think one of the problems we see there uh, is that there's no strategy at all. Yeah. They're just, I mean, I would be, uh, I could understand a strategy that I disagreed with, but I don't see a strategy. I see, I see kind of stumbling. Well, if your, ultimate, if your ultimate objective is, is to retrench, it's hard to have a forward-leaning strategy. Yeah. Well, it's uh, – and, and I think their argument, it was certainly true for the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's uh, true about a reduced emphasis on the Middle East and, and do, trying to do something to avoid uh, uh, more fuss in Europe is they want to focus on China. That's their excuse. But the fact is, you know, it's like uh, uh, the, you're sort of squeezing a pillow. You, you focus on China. Where are they now? They're into Afghanistan. There are rumors about them having access to Bagram Air Force Base, which is a cruel irony. Uh, the Chinese and the Russians are doing joint naval maneuvers in the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, they're all over uh, the Middle East. They're a huge oil energy importing country. They want it from wherever they can get it. Uh, the fact is the United States is a global power. We do have global capabilities. If we have the the will, we have the attention span. And to say we're going to pull back here to concentrate over in this other place is simply an invitation to somebody else uh, to go into the place that we've if, pulled out. If, if you had uh, plenty potential authority, what would you do to protect Taiwan? Well, I think uh, we should have done a lot earlier, but given that we are where we are today, I think uh, at a minimum, we should torque up the relationship with Taiwan politically and diplomatically. Uh, I've often wondered what would really happen if the United States just simply recognized Taiwan as an independent country, said we were going to exchange ambassador, have full diplomatic relations. Are the Chinese really going to expel our ambassador from Beijing forever, downgrade the relationship? Uh, I, I just, uh, I, I think there are steps less than that you can take, like, meeting with Taiwanese diplomats in official U.S. government buildings. Can you imagine the shock in Beijing when we do that? Uh, but I think we've got to do more. I think we've got to make it clear that Taiwan is not outside the famous line uh, through the Pacific of what we're going to defend. I would put American forces there on an essentially permanent basis. I can think of home porting some Navy ships. So we're right there in the Taiwan Strait. I don't think China wants war over Taiwan. I think they want it to fall into their lap like a piece of ripe fruit so they don't inherit a, a, a an island of smoking rubble. Uh, and I think if uh, Xi Jinping thinks he can get capitulation, uh, uh, b because of indications of weakness, he will press. But if he sees the possibility of resistance, not of victory on our side, but simply resistance, I think he'll pull back because a, a failure to get Taiwan easily uh, could be endangering to his regime. I mean, I, I would just say the one thing, I mean, I, I think that in this sense, the the tide is going against China and that the Kuomintang mentality is much weaker on Taiwan than it was in the past. Yeah, the, the, the statistics and polls that uh, uh, there's a 30 year long series of polls in Taiwan asking people what their identification is. Are you Chinese? Are you Taiwanese? Are you Taiwanese Chinese? The, the, the numbers, and I don't have this exactly, but Chinese uh, 30 years ago was quite high. It's down to 2% now. The number of uh, Taiwanese was like 4 or 5%. It's, it's over 50%. The rest, Taiwanese Chinese. That number of Chinese identifiers will go down to zero because of the silent artillery of time, as Abraham Lincoln said. And the number who say Taiwanese is going up. They think of themselves as different. And they act differently, and the world should treat them as different. And and it, and it has to be said, just because even if they thought of themselves as Chinese, even if you which I think which they don't, as you say, and I think there's questions where the Taiwan is really Chinese historically. But so that doesn't mean they need to submit to a one-party system on the, on the mainland. Yeah. That, that doesn't follow from it's that. Like saying, it's like saying in 1776, but you people aren't American. You're British. Why don't you just enjoy it? The king, <laughs> the king rules. You don't, you don't have to accept that. Or America saying, you know, Canada, Canadians may think they're different from us, but frankly, they're Americans just like we are. Yeah. So we're going in there. Call up the National Guard. Call up the National Guard. Hong Kong, I, we should mention, because I think it makes your point and maybe makes my point too, in this international 
rules-based order, uh, you have international law, which I know you're, as a lawyer, you're also dubious about. I kind of want to hear you talk about that. Um, the basis of international law is a treaty. That's that's the most solid thing. Everything else you can conjure up, but a treaty is a treaty. It's a contractual obligation. Well, there was a contractual obligation, a treaty between the, the British and then the Beijing government. Okay, we're going to get out of Hong Kong. You can have it, but you agree for 50 years, two different systems that they're not, you're not going to deprive the people of Hong Kong who have gotten used to a certain number of, of rights of their rights. And of course, Beijing deprived them of that, did so violently. And there, and within this rules-based order, there's been no punishment for yeah. this behavior. Yeah. If if uh, if you want to see what the rules-based international order looks like in practice, ask the people of Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, if China treats international obligations it incurs that way, uh, in, in full public view of the whole world, how will it treat its other international obligations? And there's a whole long list that we we could go through there. Uh, but I think they saw. Uh, during the Trump administration and during the Biden administration continuing, they would get no pushback and they were right, unfortunately. And, and, and I, I want to just mention this. We talked about diplomacy. Biden speaks often. The phrase he uses, I've noticed, is relentless diplomacy, which sounds good. But if you think about it, what does it mean? It means you just talk, talk, talk relentlessly until your opponent falls asleep or walks out of the room. And then at, at the It UN, sounds like death in Brussels. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and at the, the, at, the, at the UN General Assembly, when Biden made his first speech there like last year, he declared a new era of US diplomacy. Oh, how is diplomacy going to be different? You're sent, if you send diplomats abroad with no coercive powers to try to persuade representatives of the supreme leader of Iran to give up nuclear weapons, this is a new era of relentless – and you're going to persuade them on what basis? The Kerry basis of, hey, just a reminder, we're not in the 19th century. We're in the 20th century or the 21st century, and therefore, your behavior should accord with the calendar. It makes no – I mean, really, this is not even serious thinking. Yeah, it's not, it's not part of the American national character. We are an impatient <laughs> people. That's good and bad in some respects. We like to solve problems. We don't like to manage them. The Germans have a word, Sitzfleisch. <laughs> which means exactly what it sounds, and we don't have sitzfleisch. So, so Sit what has happened? Backside, so, what is something like that? Yeah, it's totally so, right. Yeah, yeah. So, what what has happened with respect to the Iran nuclear deal? The Biden administration wants to get back into it. They want to roll back to 2015. And what's been happening in uh, Vienna for now, very nearly 12 months, is the United States has made one concession after another to the Iranians, and the Iranians are still negotiating, asking for more concessions. Uh, the most outrageous of which is to say the United States would irrevocably commit to going back into this deal and could never withdraw. Well, that just doesn't happen. There's no any nation in the world that would make that obligation it isn't fit to lead. And uh, so well, that probably means the Biden administration will give it away. But <laughs> but the Iranians yeah. have no incentive to come to a conclusion at this point. Well, uh, this is and this also gets back to your argument, because the way you could do that is theoretically through a treaty. And the treaty says we will not do this. So that makes it very hard. Now, Obama didn't want the JCPOA to be a treaty, the Iran deal, because it would never pass. He didn't have congressional approval. So what did he do? He thought, I don't need congressional Actually, approval. I, I, I have to say, I think, he made a, I think he made a strategic error. There was a possibility. If you go back and you look at uh, from 2000 and was a 12 in the interim agreement uh, to 2015 in the JCPOA, uh, I think Obama and his uh, primary polemicist, Ben Rhodes, actually had the Republicans on the run. And I think they were scared and the warmongering arguments were effective. There was a chance. I don't know how big a chance. There was a chance he could have maybe gotten a treaty if he'd had the guts to actually well, push for it. It's an interesting counterfactual, counterfactual. Of course, Biden could do the same thing now. He could say, okay, I'm going to make this. I can do this for you guys, but I got to make this a treaty. But my point there was, what did Obama do? And this gets back to your arguments. He said, I'll just go to the UN. If I get the UN's endorsement, that's more important than Congress's endorsement because he, Obama, is a believer in global governance, if not global government. Uh, transnational progressivism is his ideology, even if people don't know that phrase. Um, he wants the US to cede power to international organizations, whether it's the International Criminal Court, whether it's uh, what, the UN entire. He wanted that to happen and sort of said it. And then you had. Uh, 
Foreign Minister Javad Zarif, among others, saying, once the UN endorsed the JCPOA, it's international law, and they're violating international. We're not violating international law. The Americans are, and plenty of people said, "Oh, yeah, that makes some sense." Yeah. Well, that's why this is the whole thing is kind of a, a, a gossamer web of logic. But uh, yeah. they 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 believe if you say it often enough, you you can make it true. But it it points to the uh, to to the importance of understanding that our ability to persuade others depends largely on the strength of our political, economic, and military position around the world. It's it's very persuasive when you say the United States believes X if people think that the full weight of the country is behind you. And by the way, one thing the treaty process is designed to do by requiring a two-thirds majority is to make sure that there really is consensus within the country. Right. It's counter-majoritarian. How, how about that? For those who simply want 50% plus one to have everything, framers of the Constitution knew what they were doing. They knew these international commitments could be very serious. They wanted broad agreement within the population. This is also a strange thing I'd love you to comment on. Again, it's a bit of a digression. All these negotiations, the P5 plus one, uh, we that's the U.S. saying, oh, we should have Russia and China involved in this because they're they're useful and good actors and, and they care about the same things we do and will, which has turned out not to be true. And by the way, the other thing in, t- in terms of our allies, we said, oh, the nations most directly, imminently, most um, existentially threatened by the regime in Iran, Israel, of course, Saudi Arabia, the Emiratis. We're not going to have them. They'll we'll tell them what we've decided and what we've done, and they'll accept it as good enough for them, even if they think it endangers their very existence. That, in other words, that in itself is a is a capitulation to one's adversaries and a betrayal of one's allies, isn't it? And I have, I've I've heard this mentioned, but not no. It's really not much. it's really incredible that the uh, you know they want to say to Ukraine, we will not talk about you without you. Well, ask the Israelis and the Saudis and the Emiratis how they feel about being. Being talked about with uh, their future without without even being in the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if I'm Vladimir Putin, maybe we'll have one or two more subjects to, to, to discuss. But because I see we we're, 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 we're this is going fast because it's interesting. If I'm Vladimir Putin, I think two things. One is I'm a czar, and I want to do what all czars did, which is expand or in my case restore the Russian Empire. I want to be the czar of all the Russias, and all the Russias means not just Russia, Russia, but Belarus, White Russia, and Mala Russia, which is Ukraine. I want to do that. And then maybe the Slavic Empire more generally, and Central Asia too. That was part of it, and he's made progress. But then he, I'm sure he also thinks, if I could collapse NATO, I'd really be earning my pay, wouldn't I? And that's not impossible. If that's his goal, I can see multiple ways for him to collapse NATO over the next couple of years. Well, I think what what has happened in the past few weeks is he's laid out a theoretical framework for how to do that. I don't think he expects it's going to happen this month or next month. But I think uh, it's, again, by expanding the scope of what he's after, if he simply takes less than that, people will say, oh, we dodged a bullet that time, didn't we? And uh, Putin has two qualities which uh, are rarely found together, but he's got him. He's both patient and agile, and that makes him very dangerous. Also, he does have serious influence in Eastern Europe. So Mm -hmm. uh, as he eats more, as he gets more of his way, uh, those that represent Putin's uh, interests in Eastern Europe grow in power. So it is possible to undermine Eastern Europe from the inside by these sort of peripheral uh, pressure campaigns. And uh, I mean, all I can say is, you know, thank God the the Baltic republics got got into NATO. Otherwise, uh, I think they would be on the plate. But the Baltic republics could be on the plate, it seems to me, if... Putin. NATO collapses. They're absolutely or, if, or, or even well, <laughs> even if, if if Putin is triumphant in the in, in Ukraine and the things he's doing there, I can imagine him saying we have a substantial Russian ethnic and Russian speaking population in some in in in, in the three Baltic countries, and we I have to protect them because they're being oppressed. He believes that, but I don't think <laughs> the one thing they haven't done is cross a NATO border. Now right. they've attacked the Baltics in cyberspace. Of course, right. they've attacked us in cyberspace right, right, too. Right. So I don't put that beyond him, but I think. I I think uh, that's why this gray zone of countries we left between NATO and Russia are so particularly vulnerable. 
Well, other topics you want to bring up, there's a million of them, and uh, but we can't do them all today, but we'll, we'll, have, we'll definitely want to have you back. But go ahead. Anything else you want to make sure we just, we touch on? Well, I mean, again, for me, I think the, the, the primary concern is, I mean, can you think of a, a subject um, that you can gain now consensus between Democrats and Republicans overseas when it comes to either the use of force, when it comes to covert action, comes to any of those instruments where the United States is going to, you know, engage in mock politique. It, can we reach any consensus? And if you don't have that consensus, can you be effective in the long term? Well, I think there's a chance when it comes to China, which I regard as the existential threat of the 21st century. I think uh, America was late to the party. I think we were late to understanding fatal mistakes made in our diplomacy toward China for the last 40 years or so since Deng Xiaoping came to power there. But I think it's growing. I think people look at Huawei as an instrument of Chinese state power, not a telecoms company. They're beginning to wake up. Uh, so I think the possibility is there, but it requires a president with real leadership to pull that together domestically and internationally. Now, I give Biden credit. He did have an in-person meeting of the leaders of the Quad countries, Japan, Australia, India, and the U.S. That's a step forward. The AUKUS deal to provide nuclear-powered submarines to Australia – I don't I don't know how he agreed to it, but I'm certainly <laughs> glad that he did. These are bits and pieces of putting together a big picture strategy. And I think uh, be interesting in the 2024 election if uh, dealing with China isn't isn't a big issue that I think that possibility is there. I don't think you can. Predict I, mean, I, 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 I agree with that completely. I, I do think what you said earlier is pretty important and that th these things are all intertwined. So you don't just get to, uh, you know, work on China. I mean, uh, if the other uh, fronts uh, collapse uh, and that if, if you lose uh, with Iran, if you lose with Russia, the impact of that elsewhere is substantial because they no, no see doubt it about that it. way. No doubt about it. That's Afghanistan. And, you know, yeah. depending on what happens in Ukraine and, and Eastern Europe, that could have huge ramifications worldwide. Certainly China is watching what's happening in Europe now very, very close. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm deeply suspicious when people use the phrase, uh, you know, pivot to Asia. Uh, yeah, bad phrase, no doubt. You can't, we can't pivot. We well, are a global power and we are affected. Our interests are affected everywhere. Well, it's also unstrategic in that it doesn't recognize the fact that our enemies are very clearly making common cause. Russia, Iran, China, North Korea, they make common cause, they cheer each other's victories, and they build on those victories one after the other. And they're doing this economically, they're doing this militarily. It's right before our eyes. They're not hiding the fact that they made that the authoritarians, the totalitarians are making common cause. It doesn't mean they don't have differences among them, but they're smart enough to say, that's that's later. I, we, we, that's later. If you're Beijing, if Russia takes Ukraine, eh, that's okay. Well, now Central Asia, we may have something to say there, but we can we can wait on that because they're being – I'm not sure. I don't know if you want to comment on this. You don't have to. But do we think that Biden or that uh, Tony Blinken or Jake Sullivan, do they have – I mean, are they strategic thinkers? In, in a, is it, do they have the wrong strategic thinking or do they have no strategic thinking? They're just kind of trying to hit the balls as they pass over the plate. Well, I think they've tried to make foreign policy an adjunct of domestic policy, a foreign policy for the middle class. I completely agree. You can't have a strong foreign policy without a strong American economy. There's That is a connection that too many people don't pay attention to. But when you try and sort out exactly what their priorities are, they come back to the rules-based international order and, 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 as you say, diplomacy. So it's a process question for them. And process doesn't trump aggressive, uh, indeed belligerent adversary powers advancing their own interests around the world. And our friends and allies, particularly those who are uh, most threatened, uh, the Southeast Asian countries, South Korea, Japan with respect to China, Eastern and Central Europe with respect to Russia, a lot of our friends in the Arab world and Israel and the Middle East uh, are, are consumed with worry now that we're not going to stand by them. That's why they're beginning to hedge their bets. Uh, and that's a, that's a bad thing. I mean, I did a, the ex example which uh, reveals, I think, uh, how difficult this is going to be is that it was a pretty easy call, uh, should have been a pretty easy call for President Trump to assassinate Qasem Soleimani. 
I believe uh, John had recommended that action uh, earlier. Uh, <laughs> and the repercussions, the ramifications uh, in Iran, in Iraq, elsewhere in the Middle East redounded to our advantage significantly. They still do. Yet every single uh, senior official in the Obama administration uh, publicly condemned- Obama or Biden? I mean, Biden, uh, sorry. Yeah, probably I confu- they're, they're, I, I, I confused you the repeat the yourself. Same people the same <laughs> easily done. Easily yeah, so I uh, condemned uh, that action. Uh, I mean, that was that was an easy call. And, and have they learned anything from what happened in Yemen? Because Yemen was, is an example where they said, we'll, be, we'll use diplomacy, not force. Yeah, we there's your re- relentless diplomacy. Yeah, what we'll, has happened? We'll yeah. give them, we'll, we'll take them I mean, off the if, foreign. We'll take, we'll take the, let me just finish with so yeah, people know what yeah. I'm talking about. We'll take the Houthis off the, the terrorism list. It's a concession to them. I'm sure they'll reciprocate in some way. We'll hold back the Saudis. Um, and, and, and I'm sure the Houthis will say, oh, okay, now maybe we can find common ground. And of course, it's what are they... The Houthis are now sh- shooting weapons at uh, at the Emirati, at Dubai. Or- I mean, the United States' residual power is enormous, and it's uh, it's regularly underestimated uh, uh, by the left and the right, I think, in the United States. And uh, so our capacity to recover from our mistakes is significant. But eventually, you do have to show that you are capable of, 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 of killing something. Uh, and uh, to put it crudely, I mean, it, it's like that scene in Sand Pebbles with Steve McQueen where, you know, he finally just screams out, shoot something. <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you, you do have to, if the other side is testing you, you do have to eventually demonstrate that you are willing to use lethal force. So, uh, th- so this uh, will be my exit question, unless there's other things you want to bring up today, but we will have you on again. And, and it's re- very relevant. And that's North Korea. Why not bring up North Korea here? Because North Korea, it's a small actor, but it's a it's a pretty nasty one. And and most importantly, diplomacy was supposed to solve that in 1994. Clinton came out and said, we've got now the agreed framework. My best negotiators, including Wendy Sherman, now in the current administration, um, they fig- they've worked this out. We're giving them some things. They're giving us some things. Uh, we've solved this problem. And of course, today, North Korea is a nuclear power with missiles increasingly sophisticated to target them. And um, nothing is, and, and listen, Pre- President Trump tried some stuff. I didn't think it was wrong for him to try. Um, he said, wonderful things I can give you if you cooperate. I don't think that appealed much to Kim uh, as he thought about it. I, terrible things I can do to you. The video of missile striking, I don't think he was really scared by that for long. But there's an example of a, a of a problem that has lasted for more than a generation that we have not been able to solve through diplomacy and we have not found another way to, to deal with it. Look, North Korea is uh, the embodiment of uh, Winston Churchill's comment about the confirmed unteachability of mankind. <laughs> For 30 years, people said, oh, don't think about using force. Don't think about regime change. We, we don't want them to have nuclear weapons. It's unacceptable. And we'll work it out through diplomacy. Well, 30 years later, we're at the verge of having to accept what everybody said was unacceptable. I, I'm not sure we can stop North Korea at this point. Uh, uh, given current circumstances, I at least hope those who said let's try diplomacy for 30 years are held to account uh, because that ultimately is what we need to do with with the U.S. public. We've had a long period of time since 9-11 really without uh, full discussion at, uh, uh, at a broad political level about what are America's interests in the world and how to protect them. Uh, I think the absence of that debate hurts us politically. Uh, Americans are impatient. You have to explain and justify when you want to do something internationally. If you don't take the time in advance to make that case, it's much harder later. We've got, unfortunately, three years until the next presidential election. I think uh, would-be presidential candidates need to put a much higher priority on discussing American national security with the people they want to lead uh, and explain what's necessary to make the country safe. But John, don't you think it's a bit tricky for Republicans to do that, assuming you can find the Republicans who are willing to do it, uh, if uh, Donald Trump can sort of rise up and at any moment say, I don't like that? Uh, I, I think Trump's power is way overstated. Uh, my super PAC's been issuing polls that show declining support for Trump among actual Republican voters. I think that's going to continue. I don't think he's going to run in 2024. Really? And I think a lot of other Republicans, although they won't say it publicly right now, are going to run whether he runs or not. 
as they say in Arabic, maktub. So let it be written, so let it be done. <laughs> we'll end on that <laughs> wonderful note. Uh, this has been fun and fascinating, and I do hope you'll come back because I, I really I learn a lot from these discussions enjoy and enjoy them. Thank you, Roel. Thank you, John. And thanks to all of you for being with us a little longer this time here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.